Well, it's great to be with you. My name is Tyler Johnson. I am one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Mark 3 today. So let's pray um, before we get into this. Father, we just pray and ask that you would unleash your heart uh, this morning. God, I know there are people in here who don't understand the fathering heart of God and your goodness and your love, and I pray that you just unleash that today. I also pray that you would unleash it within us, that we might share it with one another, um, God, and really, really see people at the end of looking at you. God, I hold fast to the reality that you tell us if we look at you, we will become more like you, and God, that is our desire and aspiration. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Paul mentioned this yesterday uh, was Tom who I don't presume everybody in here knows, but he's the founding pastor of this church. He was my father-in-law. And this happened at the same time last hour, sorry. And one of my best friends in the world. Um, and it was his funeral and it was really special. It was a really, really special service. And I personally, with what I believe, just chalked that up to you can't plan for something to be as special as that was, that God really showed up and uh, was gracious to us and, and spoke to us. But it's also really strange. Uh, Haley and I were talking last night about there's a moment in a memorial service that seems so final. And when there's these people you love, there's this concern that just everything goes on. And, and it's uh, when you're that close to somebody, the loss just feels really significant. So it's like there's this loss of gravity is what it feels like. Like you're kind of going, whoa, like how do I find my bearings? And I've been thinking a lot even before Tom's death about this book. I don't know how many of you guys uh, know it. Tell me, how many of you guys have heard of the book, Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? It's so interesting. The older I get, and honestly, the more I think about the Bible, the more I really think there's truth to that. And I didn't grow up in the church. I had minimal Sunday school experience, but uh, there is this sense of everything you ever needed to know you learned in kindergarten with church too. And there's this song that little kids are taught that I've been thinking about a lot, and candidly I've been singing to myself a bit, and it's, he's got the whole world in his hands. And I, I really wonder when Jesus talks about children, that you have to become like a little child. I think the older we get, we look at these songs and we're like, oh yeah, nice little kitty song. But here's what it says. It says, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. So the author's trying to get a point across, right? <laughs> and he says, he's got the fish of the sea in his hands. He's got the birds of the air in his hands. He's got the fish of the sea in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. So I really believe the author's trying to conjure that Everything God made, and Colossians talks about this, the things we can see and the things we can't see, but he's got it all in his hands. Then he says this, he's got the gambling man in his hands, he's got the sinner man in his hands, he's got the gambling man in his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. What's he trying to communicate? When you're out there and you feel like a mess and when you're out there and you know you're a mess, like fill in the gap. If it's not gambling, addiction, if it's not addiction, it's depression, if it's not depression, it's failures, not measuring up, like he's got the whole group in his hands. Then he gets real small. He's got the little bitsy baby in his hands. He's got the little bitsy baby in his hands. He's got the little bitsy baby in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands, like big things, all of creation, little babies. Then just in case you didn't get it, he's got everybody in here in his hands. 
He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got everybody in here in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And there's, there's something, honestly, that is, for me, the reason I was singing it is it was kind of grounding. So this idea of God, this image of the world in God's hands. So look at this for a minute and just think about the world in God's hands, that the only way this news is good and not just trite and almost hallmarkish, if it's, if it's true and it's good, the only way it's true is if God is good. And Jesus has this moment where this man comes to him and says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus' statement to him sounds kind of harsh, but he's making a point. He says, why do you call me good? For nobody's good but God alone. And then 1 John picks up this idea that God is love. So the biblical teaching is that God is that in control. From the biggest things that we see in the world to the smallest itty-bitsy babies to an insect in the ground to our lives, he's got in good, loving hands. But here's the problem, not just for Christians, but for so many people in our world, is we view that if there's a God out there or there's a force in nature, that it's more like what those hands are holding is a book. So this book has no writing on it, but we tend to think like if there's a God out there, he's holding a book, like I gotta know more. Or he has a book that records all that you have done. So the Bible actually speaks to that, that that's true. But is this the primary picture that the Bible gives of God is that he's holding a book and what that means in the end is you better do right. You better figure it out. You better know the right things. You better do the right things. And if you don't, God's after you. Well, this passage we have today in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, really bring out this imagery incredibly well. But I want to say this about the series that we're in before we get into this passage, Love Walked Among Us. It is so important when you read the Bible, and many, many, like, amazing minds of the past, even if they didn't call themselves Christians, would go, Jesus is amazing. Albert Einstein's one of them who talked about his personality being on every page of the gospel, and that Jesus' personality pulsates in every word. But oftentimes we read the gospels, and because we're Christians, and rightfully so, Jesus is God. That is I would argue a defining characteristic of Christianity, to be very honest with you, I think it's the defining characteristic of biblical Christianity, is that Jesus is God. Not a God, not a prophet, he is God. But so many of us read these passages just like, oh, well, he did another miracle. That proves that he's God. That proves that he's God. But here's something you have to understand. It's the, one of the major purposes of the series is that Jesus is God, which means, follow this, God is like Jesus. You may go, duh. No, but here's what I'm saying. When you watch what Jesus does, that's what God is like. Because all Jesus can do is act out of his very character, out of his very nature, which is God, divine. Jesus is truly God and truly man, which is why when the disciples are somewhat confused and Philip believes in God, he goes, Jesus, would you show us the Father, God the Father, show us the Father. And Jesus says to him, Philip, if you've seen me, 
you've seen the Father. So we have to slow ourselves down in the Gospels to understand what this is. Because when we see Jesus, Paul says this, we become like him. What you look at anytime, again, I, don't, you're in, I know there's a lot of people in here that may not say they're Christians. What you look at, you become like. You want to get healthy? Start reading health magazines and doing something about it. You want to get better at something? Look at those things. When we look at Jesus, we become like him. We taught this book in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.1, Paul says this, be imitators of God as beloved children. The language of the Bible is always familial language, which gets us caught up a lot for many of us who may not have grown up in great families, as it can be very difficult to understand this. But he's saying, be an imitator of God as beloved children, which means, as the New Testament testifies, that when you understand Christ, and more importantly, Christ understands you and grabs a hold of your heart, you become his children. He's saying, therefore, imitate God. But how do we imitate a God that we can't see? Jesus. Jesus. The good, loving God manifested to us in fully man, Jesus himself. So understand that as we get to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, starting in verse 1, again he entered the synagogue. That's Jesus. Again he entered the synagogue. Now understand the context of this. At the very end of chapter 2, first off to say, chapters weren't actually in the original Bible. They're there to help us find our way through the text. But at the end of chapter 2, Jesus had just had this encounter with the religious leaders of the time who believed the Hebrew scriptures, which Jesus himself believed. These are the religious people. Let's say it this way. They're us. They're the church people. But they're not just us. They're the scholars, the theologians theologians at the time. He just had a moment where his disciples are walking in a field and they're hungry and they begin to eat, but it's on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees go crazy. Why are your followers doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? They're not supposed to be working and picking up grain and eating it. And Jesus's conclusion to the Pharisees is this statement. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is so important. Remember the word man. The Sabbath was made for man, for humans, not humans to observe the book, the law, and just go, we just got to get it right, we got to get it right. The book, the law, is there for a purpose. It's there for man. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is like, I kind of understand the law, I wrote it. <laughs> so now, again, he enters the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, Mark 3, 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. What we do with this verse is common to what we do in real life. We just fly by it. But it's a man with a withered hand. So slow down and think about this. A man with a withered hand. Why is the man with a withered hand in the synagogue? Well, synagogue was a place of being taught about God. It was a place of worship. So likely this man wanted to have some encounter with God. Now, if you follow the narrative of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of Jesus, all the time people who were outcast, who were lame, who were vulnerable, who were overlooked, who were invisible by society, wanted to be around Jesus. Now, if you're invisible or overlooked by society, why would you want, want to be around Jesus? Because around him, you're not invisible. 
Now, I think about this. Of, it's very interesting. I have to just say this quickly. But I noticed in the last couple months uh, when I'd go over to Tom and Sandy's house, Tom had this book uh, Ralph Allison wrote sitting on his uh, table called The Invisible Man. Allison wrote that book speaking about an African-American man, how in that society, African-Americans were constantly overlooked. They were invisible. And the reason Tom was reading it, I'm convinced, if you heard him talk at the end of his life anything about aging, was as you get old in our culture, in our society, you're not seen. So he would say often, even about his transition around here, is that you go from being who's who to who's he. And it's just the nature of the way we do things. But Jesus has this uncanny ability that when people are overlooked, that he does something very different. And here's the thing. I can't look at this and go, oh, man, those terrible people who overlook people with vulnerabilities. I mean, if you came up to me right now and you were sick with the flu, I'd be like, get away from me. And I'd act like you weren't there and I'd walk the other way. But that's what we do a lot. I mean, people with mental health issues or people with physical disabilities, it's almost like we don't even know what to do. And if people are in this room right now with physical disabilities, I guarantee they can testify to this as people. It's uncomfortable. People don't know. They just move on. But there's a man there with a withered hand. Certainly this man wanted to be normal, right? I mean, I can't imagine any differently. Again, if I'm sick right now, if you're sick, you're typically healthy, you're sick with a deep cold or the flu of some kind, you think and you're like dreaming, I just can't wait to get over this and get normal again. Those who struggle in deep depression and anxiety just long for, I wish I could just be normal. Phys people with physical disabilities that can't walk have moments where they really do wish they could walk. He wished he would be normal and yet he was overlooked by the society. And now the religious leaders, verse 2, what are they doing? Where are their eyes going? They watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him, the man, on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. So now the religious leaders, get this, the religious leaders, the Bible people, take this man, they make him a pawn so they can accuse Jesus. They look totally through the man. Here's a big word. They dehumanize him. They don't stop at the moment and go, Man, a man with a withered hand. I wonder what his past is like. I wonder what he feels like. I wonder what it's like to be an outcast. I wonder what it's like to be invisible. They don't do that. They have their book and they're like, is it right? Let's see. Let's see. Just let me tell you. You tell me. If you've worked in a job where people walk in with a board where they're checking you, right? They're in the back of a room. If you're a teacher in here and you're getting evaluated that week and they sit in the back of the room and they're like, is that the easy time to teach? No, that breeds anxiety, right? When you're looked through, not upon and into, when you're looked through or over and you're viewed as, are they living up to the book? It breeds anxiety. It doesn't make you relax. It breeds anxiety. And they're putting Jesus on trial and using the man as the pawn to see if he'd heal him. And he, that's Jesus, says to the man with the withered hand. Now that's an interesting statement already because I got to assume this man is almost never personally addressed, right? People walk by him, they walk around him, they walk through him. He's not personally addressed. So just the reality that Jesus sees him and speaks to him has to be empowering to him at some level. Someone's talking to me, but not just someone's talking to me. He, Jesus, is talking to me. And then Jesus says, come here. 
Now, this is important and I want to slow us down long enough because I think a lot of times our view of the tone of Jesus's words say a lot about how we view God. Like, did he say, hey, you come here. It's now, is he now going, it's now my opportunity to use you to make a point. It's like when you're, this is a, a big challenge in one of the Sunday school songs that we teach kids, the, the song about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And then when it gets to a certain point, here's the way teachers teach the kids. Put up your finger, Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to your house today. Where does it say that in the text? That Jesus pointed his finger. Is, is God a finger pointing God? Or is he, hey, Zacchaeus, open arm, come down. I'm going to go to your house today. Well, I think from Zacchaeus' response is it wasn't you come down. I think then Zacchaeus would have climbed higher in the tree, right? But he jumped down like, you're going to go to my house? So here at this moment, how we hear him say, come here, I really believe is like, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come here. But Jesus is always doing thousands of things in one moment. And so he brings the man to him, come here, I believe in a very compassionate way, and he says to them, the religious leaders who are seeking to accuse him, he says, is it lawful? Why does he say that? Why do you think? Why does he say, is it lawful? Well, if you go back in the text, it says they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Like, is he going to do something that's against the law? They've got their books. Is Jesus going to do something against the law? So he goes, Hey, he looks at them. Is it lawful? The text doesn't say this, but I think he probably pauses at that moment so they can just start salivating the law. The law. Like, is it lawful? Yes, tell me, is it lawful? He then says this. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now, what's incredible about Jesus is he knows a lot more of the law than you and I do, a lot more of the law. But he's bringing up the scriptures and rabbinic tradition to call them in their judgmentalism that isn't just judgmentalism, but it ultimately destroys people. It ultimately kills people. But they're still sitting there. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? And they're just sitting there like, But they were silent. They don't answer. So you, again, get yourself in the text and feel the tension in the moment. Like this moment is like, cut it with a knife. They're in a synagogue. The man with the withered hand that everybody's like, oh, he's here. Oh, like can walk around, move around, move around. Now they're there watching Jesus. Here's this man. Here's Jesus. Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Jesus says, is it lawful? You tell me. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, the man he's already called up there is sitting there, not on the sides anymore. He's sitting there with Jesus. They're there, and I assume before they were silent, he's silent. Like, answer the question. And they're silent. Now, look at what comes next. They were silent, and he looked around at them. I don't think he went like this. I really think he, he locked eyes with each one of these board holders, right? Looked at him, looked at him, nothing. And he looked at them with anger 
and was grieved at their hardness of heart. One of the scenes that comes to my mind based on kill and give life was the moment when Cain kills his brother Abel and God comes on the scene and he says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain goes, am I my brother's keeper? I'm convinced at that moment God just got silent because he doesn't say he says anything. I think it's like letting it sit there like, really? That's the point we've come to. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? Without saying anything, it's like, yes, for God's sake, you're your brother. I mean, literally, for God's sake, yes, you're your brother's keeper. I think his silence at that moment, he looks around with them. They're silent. He's silent. And he just gets angry and he's grieved. Folks, listen to this. Do you know what the word anger means in the original language? Anger. <laughs> God gets angry. Now, if I said that on its own, God gets angry, most of us would be terrified and we think about a book-holding God that's just angry with us and so mad with us. But what is Jesus angry about that leads to grief at their hardness of heart. Grief means it's in his heart. He's grieved and mad at their hearts. Why? Why does that, that's what you have to ask. Why is God mad and feeling deep grief at the hardness of their hearts? Let me just start by saying this. What we get angry about reveals what we love. What's so interesting about Jesus is he never gets angry when he's attacked. But he gets really angry when the outcast and the vulnerable are attacked. When women are oppressed. When people are overlooked. And when God is mocked, right? There's a scene in the temple that we'll get to of where anything that gets in the way of this greatest of commandments, to love God with all of our everything, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you block someone from loving God, let the little children come to me, let them come. They block them. It's like, no. And then he says, if you do anything to impede these people from experiencing the heart of the Father and the love of God, it's better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and you be tossed into the sea. Like he gets angry at that moment. When you get in the way of God or you get in the way of love of neighbor, that's what grieves him. That's when he gets angry. He gets angry when he gets represented by the religious leaders as a book-holding God. What else about this angers him or grieves him? These are the religious leaders. They're supposed to know the law. Now, right now, there's a sense of like, oh, so... So is Jesus setting it up as Moses? Now, if you didn't know this, Moses is the one who received the law from God. Is it Moses or mercy? Like, is it either or? Is it law or love? Was Jesus trying to say, don't even worry about the law. Don't even worry about the Old Testament. You don't even have to worry about doing all of that. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, which people would say was the most famous of all Jesus' sermons, he said this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking about the law says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Keep that up there. So let me ask you this question. Participate with me. Who came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Jesus. Remember that. Say it one more time. Who came to fulfill the law and the prophets? You don't even have to be a Christian. Who did it? Just based on that. Jesus. Okay. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them to fulfill them. He goes on. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest level, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's what the Pharisees would go. Well, that's it. That's what we're trying to do. We're holding the book evaluating to try to see if you're breaking in even an iota or a dot of the law. Because we don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven because we want to do them and teach them so we'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, why are they wrong? The Apostle Paul says this in Romans, big, thick, doctrinal book in the Bible. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He goes on, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. So what are those commandments? The what commandments? Ten. Do you know the fourth commandment is keep the Sabbath day holy? They were trying to fulfill the commandments. But here's what he says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, including the fourth, keep the Sabbath holy, are summed up in this word, Love your neighbor as yourself. He moves on. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So let me ask you this. What is it? Does Christ fulfill the law or does love fulfill the law? Huh? Yes, right? Yes, God is love. God is like Jesus. Jesus is love. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The way we fulfill the law is to love. He was grieved because he's like, you've missed the whole point of the law. The whole point. You're using it as a means to accuse and condemn. But the Son of Man came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Because he so loved the world. You've missed the whole point and you're representing me. So then Jesus, which I love, gets creative with his love. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretches it out, the man's hand is healed. Now I said this, God's always doing a thousand things in a moment, but at least there's two at this point. He sees the man, he speaks to the man, he calls to man to the front to make everybody else see him. He asks a question to the Pharisees. Then he loves the man by healing the man. Let me just say this. Christ's character is consistent all the time. He acts according to his character, according to who he is, which means God is acting according to who he is. And God is a rebuilder in his very nature. He's a restorer. He's a healer. He's a savior at the very core of his nature. 
He moves into pain. He moves into problems. He moves into anguish. He moves into darkness to bring about light, to bring about restoration. He's acting according to his character and loving the man. What else is he doing? Sticking it to the Pharisees, right? And we're like, yes! Stick it to those judgmental... And then Paul says to us, you who judge the judgers yourselves do the very same thing. He isn't sticking it to the Pharisees. He's loving the Pharisees. He's loving the Herodians. This is like Martin Luther King Jr. said, it isn't loving to allow the oppressor to stay in the oppressive state. That state's dehumanizing to them. They weren't made by God to be judges. There's one judge. It's God. He's loving them. So he heals in order to love them and then gives them an opportunity in the healing to either in wonder say, look at this man, how he loves. Or to stay. His hand is restored and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. That's a political group who also hated Jesus how they might destroy him. Now, let me tell you about the craziness of the human heart. They're there going, we're trying to make sure he doesn't break the fourth commandment and are so passionate about the fourth commandment that they break the sixth and the ninth. The ninth is don't bear false witness against anybody, which they're doing both to the man with the withered hand and to Jesus. And then they plot to kill him. Now, I'm pretty certain one of the 10 commandments everybody knows is don't murder but they've so fixed themselves on this, it's bred their anxiety. We can't be wrong. When you're living in a book-holding, ultimately rule-keeping, first and foremost mentality, it breeds your anxiety. And anxiety breeds control, and control breeds domination, and domination is certainly not love. But if God holds the whole world in his hands and he's love, and you go, this is what we're called to do. Jesus is God. God is love. He's called us to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means, 1 Corinthians 13, it isn't loving to allow someone to be led astray. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Let God judge. Right? We'll love which means at times inside the church, when people are holding their profession, we say, hey, this isn't according to truth. Or we guide people in the way, in the truth, in the life, which is Jesus. But as we end, I have to say this. Christ is consistent in his character all the way to the very end, all the way to the cross. It's for the joy set before Jesus, the scriptures say, that he endures the scorn and endures the shame to run after us and our withered hearts in sin. Many of us struggle, like, how does God get angry? There's a woman named <clears throat> Becky Pippert um, who's written a book that's absolutely incredible called Hope Has Its Reasons. And she says, many of us can get really disrupted at the idea that God could get angry, but love demands anger. And she says this, love detests, hear this, love detests that which destroys the beloved. 
Real love stands against the deception. It stands against the lie. It stands against the sin that destroys. Sin is radically self-centered and it's anti-love. God hates sin because of what it does to his beloved. He loves his creation. He loves us before the world began. He so loves the world that he gives his only begotten son and follows the same path. He sees the withering that sin has done to us and he says, I'm gonna come to you and take out of you a heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh. I'm gonna pour my heart into your heart that you might live. You will encounter my love and experience abundant life. And then he says this, and remember this, with my heart flowing through your heart, to live abundantly, living abundantly, is to love abundantly. That's the message of Jesus, the one who was love in human form walking amongst us. Let's pray. God, I just pray again the prayer I prayed before that your love would be poured out into the hearts of everyone who's here. God, that you would allow us to experience your love and the power of it in such a palatable way, a way that we experience that we might be given the power to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray.